You're listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm Liz Maxwell, your host. Today's episode features a live recording from a SOCAP 365 panel that we did on investing for racial equity uh, just last May in New York City. And this is a topic that we really wanted to do something on early this year as part of the 365 series. It's continuing conversations uh, that we've been featuring at SOCAP for several years now. And I'm very pleased with the way this panel came together. It took a couple of months to build this event, but in the end, I think we have great representation from just how folks are tackling this issue from a variety of different angles and from different sectors. So on today's panel, we have Eleni DeJanis of the New York City Economic Development Corporation, giving us the kind of public sector perspective. We have Miljana Vujosevic from Prudential, a larger institutional investor, big bank that is, uh, has a very rigorous impact investing division. Brinda Ganguly of the Blended Catalyst Fund for Living Cities, which works with uh, dozens of foundations and financial institutions across the U.S., and James Johnson Pyatt, an entrepreneur, the CEO and principal at Urbane Development. Uh, The panel is moderated by Jim Carr of the Roosevelt Institute and focuses on both what's happening with investing for racial equity within the context of New York City, but also looks at several other examples across the country and sort of what's happening in this field more broadly. So thanks for listening and tuning in. Uh, Let's see, other notes. So you can now leave us a voicemail if you have thoughts on the episode, want to give us a little comments or feedback. If you go to socialcapitalmarkets.net slash money and meaning, there's a new little tool on there that's so cool. And so you can leave a voicemail, record, tell us what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're planning to join us at SOCAP 18 this year, our annual flagship conference in San Francisco, I have a special code to offer you. Please feel free to use the network partner code NP underscore money and meaning. That's N as in network, P as in partner, underscore money, A-N-D, meaning, for $250 off of your SOCAP 18 ticket. Uh, There's a ticket deadline coming up on August 31st. Uh, The summer special ends and ticket prices will go up again. So whenever you use that code, you'll get an extra $250 off. Um, And we encourage you to buy tickets soon because the ticket prices do increase getting closer and closer to the conference, which is October 23rd to 26th in San Francisco. Thanks again for listening and please enjoy this episode. Um, My name is Jim Carr. I'm the Coleman A. Young Endowed Chair and Professor at Wayne State University. I'm also a visiting fellow right here with the Roosevelt Institute. I also have a column that I write for Forbes magazine. And finally, I hit an investment company, Turquoise Bay Investment Partners. So I like to stay busy. Um, I have a distinguished panel, and we're going to be very informal, just like I've introduced myself. We're going to let the panel introduce themselves and let you know um, what's really important uh, that you should know about their background before we dive into the questions. But before we start that, I just want to just start with a few comments. Uh, Probably most, if not all of you, are aware this is an, an extraordinary time. Um, this is the 50th anniversary of both the Fair Housing Act as well as the Kerner Commission report. And so there are lots of conferences and lots of research that is being generated this year looking at what's happened over the past 50 years. And one of the things that is most dispiriting is that most of the research is showing that despite 50 years of these important events, um, that we still have vast disparities with respect to income and wealth, but it doesn't stop there. With respect to access to quality education, quality health care, even environmental circumstances. And so we know we have a long way to go in terms of addressing the disparities uh, for disadvantaged populations in America. 
And uh, one of the things that I take away from the Kerner Commission report, there's so much there to read. You know, we're all familiar with the cautionary note that they gave that has been quoted millions of times, that if we don't change the course of our nation, we're heading in a direction of two nations, separate and unequal. If you look at the recommendations, the recommendations that's always stood out to me as really powerful is the one where they say the solutions have to be at the magnitude and the scale of the problems of the of the problems that actually cause the disparities. So when you look back for African Americans, for example, of 300 years of slavery, and for people of color, particularly at the middle of the last century coming forward, when a host of affirmative action programs were put into place. But they weren't affirmative action for people of color. They were affirmative action in the form of the GI Bill, FHA, Fannie Mae, enormous wealth-building programs from the, uh, that were launched around the Great Depression era and that continued up until the 1990s. Uh, between the 30s and uh, post-World War I to the 70s, the greatest period of wealth creation in America, and people of color were excluded from basically most, if not all, of that. And so our panel tonight is very important because trying to fill that vacuum, not replace government programs in any way because private sector can't do it. Nonprofits can't replace what need to be government edicts funded at a, at a significant level. But lots of investors, lots of uh, individual institutions, a lot of uh, philanthropists, have actually gotten together, created funds, created investment strategies, and have been working to try and create a more equitable America. And that is what our panel is about tonight. And so we're going to hear from uh, four of some of the most uh, innovative, creative entrepreneurs uh, who are managing funds and or programs and initiatives that are having a real impact we're going to have them introduce themselves first, and then we're going to hear a little bit about some of the things that, that they are actually doing. So I think we'll just start off with the introduction, starting with Miljana and then coming across. Great. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Miljana Vajosevic, and I'm with an impact investing group at Prudential. And so Prudential has had an impact investing group for over 40 years. And so interestingly, it started around the time that CRA came into play for banks and a few insurance companies decided to launch similar mandates thinking the writing was on the wall and it never really happened. And so we've been the beneficiary of a very flexible impact investing strategy for that time. So we've invested balance sheet capital uh, over $2.4 billion across asset classes and impact sector, including education, energy, financial inclusion, community development, you name it, we've probably touched it in some respect. And I've been at Proof for four, uh, seven years. I'm saying four, it's really seven. Uh, always with the same group uh, and lead a few strategies there, including uh, our charter school work, our f domestic financial inclusion work, our pay for success work, an inclusive venture capital strategy. Uh, and I think that's it. I probably forgot something, but happy to be here. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Brenda Ganguly, and I'm with Living Cities. Living Cities is an economic and racial justice organization. We do our work in different ways, but one of the ways in which we do our work is by making impact investments. We've been making impact investments for a decade through the Catalyst family of funds. Our most recent fund, which is a structured debt fund called the Blended Catalyst Fund, has been capitalized to the tune of $40 million by financial institutions like Prudential and foundations. And we're currently looking for borrowers that help us to fulfill our mission, which is around closing racial wealth gaps by supporting the creation of jobs, income, and wealth for low-income people of color in U.S. cities. So my role at Living Cities is I oversee our impact investing team and our impact investing activities, and I'm delighted to be on this panel. Thank you. Eleni Janis. I am with the New York City Economic Development Corporation, uh, where I oversee a lot of our corporate and um, corporate partnerships. 
corporate partnerships, um, rather, I'm sorry, cross-sector partnerships and corporate attraction to advance innovation, internal and external, in the ecosystem in New York City and create jobs, um, equitable access to jobs and as well as entrepreneurship is a key lens through which we conduct our work. I will say just briefly about myself. It's so great to see several of you that we've interacted over the years. I have spent um, um, a long time, probably most of my career, over 13 years in public policy at the intersection of um, um, uh, many years in Washington, D.C. Last time I ran into Jim, we were working um, on financial reform and uh, FFHA. I never got the acronym right. Further, furthering, yes, FHFA, thank you, um, housing and economic public policy for several years in Washington, D.C. I am an entrepreneur, I guess maybe to some extent, studied a nonprofit and consulting practice in the past and never had a job in my life that I inherited. Um, so at D.C. helped start a couple of new teams. And I do strongly believe in the power of systems, both of that of capital markets and government, as well as in... Um, intersectionality and our economy as well as so many other things in our society tend to be so have been and going to be very monolithic so there is capital as you all know of course and the, the dynamics of the bottom line and the dynamics and business model of, uh, of social impact and uh, I think yes happily uh, I'm, I'm pleased happy to see forces bringing those two closer together at EDC, we do think about systems. Um, we, are, we, we work for the city of New York to advance economic innovation. I'm sorry, rather to advance economic development and jobs. Our focus is largely on building infrastructure and creating the ground and environment necessary for entrepreneurs to thrive here. So we have a $4 billion portfolio. Um, of a, a range of investments, not just financial, definitely not. I mean, uh, it would be amazing if we had $4 billion just for impact <laughs> investing. I'll be the first to sign up. But it is a combination of infrastructure projects from digital infrastructure to running the city ferries to a very long, a large portfolio of entrepreneurship work. Um, we have seeded 20 incubators and accelerators in the city. We've run over 30 to 40 programs uh, for entrepreneurs. And, and startups, we have debt and uh, we have financial products for niche industries and businesses. We don't call it impact investing. We're just late to the brand game, to the branding game. However, it is absolutely impact investing. Our goal is to close market gaps and support uh, small, not small, young entrepreneurs in different businesses from life sciences and healthcare solving health issues to small real estate developers bringing development to under communities in Brooklyn. I'm very happy to be here. I'm James Johnson Pyatt. I'm a principal at Urban Development based here in New York. Uh, so it's an economic development consultancy, but I'm having a bit of an identity crisis um, hearing everyone speak here. Um, I guess I'm an entrepreneur, and I guess I'm a consultant, and I guess I'm a developer. Um, I guess we're all those things. My company has three buckets. The first one is data and analytics. So we work predominantly in underserved markets throughout the U.S. Um, what that means for us is communities of color, particularly places where there's heavy cash economies, where there's folks who are undocumented, who are generally underserved by the marketplace. So we have learned to dive very deeply and get very interesting information at the primary and secondary level um, so we can quantify those markets as best we can and to help um, stakeholders throughout the capital ecosystem understand how to invest in those places. Uh, our second tranche is consulting and advisory work, so we take that data and really help those businesses be able to thrive and use those insights to actually do things, so whether it's raised capital. So you know, our number, uh, I think it's $57 million over the last 10 years, so small but mighty, we're, we're moving along. Um, the third piece, which is relatively new, um, we have had some interesting experiences working with uh, the real estate ecosystem. Lots of the pressures for our, for our clients tend to be focused on rent. Um, and what we've realized is what's lacking, in our view, is really smart investment at the, at the real estate level. So we've jumped in um, to work with particularly housing developers who have a desire to do mixed-use development in a more ethical and sustainable way, helping them find entrepreneurs who really need supports. And so we'll co-develop with them, bring that analytic and that consulting and insight work into the actual space, so to Alenny's point, uh, we're one of those small developers who have, a, have sites in Brooklyn. Um, we have a market that we'll talk about a little bit later, but it's um, 38 micro entrepreneurs from the Caribbean and African diaspora. 
uh, please come to our market. <laughs> um, it's uh, a really cool space. Um, it's, it's a really interesting opportunity for us to think about um, preserving culture, um, particularly within you know, a, a context of, of really heavy gentrification pressures um, in that neighborhood. So, um, you know, for us, it's taking that model where we can think about how can we affect space and how can we get into places where there's opportunities to kind of marry mission and, and, and profit. So I want to get into, before we actually start diving into some examples of initiatives, get into sort of the theory of change. Uh, who do you focus on? Why do you focus? Are there geographic uh, areas of focus, specific demographics, et cetera? So that to the extent that there are people who are watching and you want to connect better with them, you know exactly who to turn to. And James, in terms of theory of change, I think we'll just start this way and then go back down. But James, you have talked about the difference between income and wealth, and it's something that I feel very strongly about as well. Because when you look at the income uh, differentials between 60 to 65 cents on a dollar for Latinos and African Americans compared to every dollar of non-Hispanic whites in terms of income, um, that we would be so lucky if the wealth disparities were that much. The wealth disparities are quite different. Depending on the databases you're looking at, um, non-Hispanic whites have between uh, 8 to 10 to 13 times the wealth of Latinos and African Americans. And so I'm wondering, James, how do you look at that? You know, if you could talk a little bit about that and, and how that plays out through actually how you prosecute your work. Right. So I think we've, we've been wrestling a lot with, you know, does... Does increases in income actually lead to to ultimately you know wealth generation? And if we're defining it as the accrual of assets, um, whether they are tangible or not, do, do those outcomes lead to that to that conclusion? Um, and I'm still you know I'm still in an interesting space with that. Um, but in terms of how we do our work, I think we look at both both pieces of the pie. So we do want to think about industries um, that are you know high growing, that are you know where there where there are potential bottlenecks in terms of entry, so if there are educational attainment issues, how do we solve those problems? If it's an issue around networking, um, how do we connect folks who have the skill sets to, to the markets? That makes sense. Um, but in terms of the, the asset classes that I think we're interested in, you know, real estate's obviously one, it's, it's very clear, um, particularly in a market like New York City, if you can get your hands on a real estate asset pretty much anywhere in the city, you're, you're not in a bad place. So how do you get you know, communities of color tapped in um, to being able to acquire assets? And I think what's interesting within our context is on the public side, it's, you know, how do we have conversations with the public entities that we work with and say, hey, look, you know, is there an opportunity for you guys to think creatively, whether it's from emerging, emerging developer, um, you know, criteria where you're thinking about, you know, maybe slightly lax collateral requirements or equity requirements on that level, if you have an impact point that you're going to create as a developer to, you know, helping communities accrue capital collectively. And, and there's lots of really great examples that I'm sure we'll talk about over the next hour around communities being able to, to, to pull their money collectively, both from real estate and other, other, other assets. Um, what we're really into, obviously, is building the, the, the assets of business. So we, we really think really hard about businesses that we call our community anchors. So they're the businesses that are really sticky in a community. So if you have a, have a community that may have had you know, macro-level economic issues, but they're still the corner store, they're still the bar, they're still the, the, the daycare that's been there forever, why is that the case? Why have they been able to weather the storm? I want to understand what the, the special sauce from that business is and how do we take what they're doing from a process perspective and make that work. What we often find is they have the trust of the community pretty much locked in, and they end up doing more than what they typically are, are set up to do. So a grocery store ends up being 16 other things to a community because it's lacking all those other services. Um, so we think about how can we strengthen that business and how can we think about the echo effect from that business's anchorage um, into a neighborhood. So you know our project that we're doing in Flatbush speaks to that particularly. We have 38 small businesses in one space. If we can catalyze those businesses, if we can create net effects for those businesses, they create an echo boom. They create a multiplier, both in terms of jobs and in terms of, in terms of their own wealth around the business assets. So I've been talking to them about their balance sheet, which to them is like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm like, but this is a super important concept. <laughs> Your equity matters. <laughs> you would think it's, but it's, 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 it's a thing that's like, yeah, that other, thing, that other sheet that your accountant puts together that you don't look at, that one. Yeah, that equity line needs to grow a little bit. So let's talk about what that looks like. So, so business as an asset for sure. But you know, as we are talking earlier, I'm really intrigued about public infrastructure. I think the idea of 
you know, community-owned power, community-owned broadband. We have some folks in the room who are, who are experts in that space for sure. Um, you know, literally not just having debt in large infrastructure, but actually owning some of it. What does it look like in communities where they can have a piece of that pie? And how do you structure the constructs to be able to do the community organizing, the community wealth building, where we have to get institutions to, to, to do some sort of guarantee? However it needs to split out, how can we think about that asset class as, as a whole, as a next opportunity for investment? And then the last thing I'll say is the intangible assets that I, like, I've been running my brain around. We give away our data in ways that are just absurd. And I think when I say that, I don't just mean the Facebook stuff that you gave to Cambridge Analytica. It's the, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the, the content creation. It's the IP that community, particularly communities of color creates that really, that incubate the mainstream, whatever that may be. And we oftentimes don't think about the IP, the process, the, the tools that come off of that as things that you own and that you can grow. Um, and you have an entire, you know, you have an entire infrastructure around high-risk, tolerant investment for tech or for other kinds of high-growth industries. And we don't think about the same thing in communities where there is a ton of talent and a ton of IP sitting there, but there is no high-risk you know, capital thinking about that as a construct and being the smart capital to help those businesses be able to grow, grow their concepts up. Because the best thing about VC, to me, is not the money. It's the strategic value that they bring. And we don't have that in those communities. And I think it's an important piece to think about here. Okay, Lonnie, again, uh, your theory of change, how do you pick your projects, your clients, um, a little bit about that? Certainly. Um, I, I, will, I, I will, can I very briefly comment on the infrastructure, though, just quickly, to say that I, so when I, st- I strongly believe in the public-private partnerships for infrastructure um, and the role that private capital can play in building infrastructure in this country and many other countries, but including in this country where we have a you know, deficit as far as both maintaining, leave alone building new and digital infrastructure. And it's my life mission to see that happen, although it is not my job, but maybe I will make it. But, um, but I do work very closely with investors, both institutional investors and private investors, and there is so much appetite for it. And, and it is I find a great opportunity for impact investing to scale um, and stay true to its mission through public-private partnerships. And, and, and the, the framework for it, I mean, I know people talk about the legal framework and the White House, but there are many opportunities, and EDC is actually a prime example of that, to, um, to both finance and implement projects, uh, infrastructure and build infrastructure in a public-private partnership model that can happen within the existing framework, public uh, legal framework, or even actually using a completely new framework that doesn't even, that doesn't even need to be legislated. So I think there's fun, great community, great opportunity there and for impact investors who are listening. Um, I think there is a lot in uh, thinking about digital infrastructure, building smart cities, and which brings us to your question, Jim, about how do we think about in, uh, how do we think about uh, projects and where do we? Yeah, how do you prioritize yes. them? Because just Absolutely. James mentions infrastructure, and clearly there's a role there. Mm-hmm. There's so many potential things you could pursue. How do you go about sort of refining and synthesizing and getting down to the ones that you think will have the greatest impact? Absolutely. And, and so there are two fronts, one on the, uh, as the city of New York and at least the Economic Development Corporation, when there are two uh, frameworks within which we operate. One is a place-based framework. So thinking about neighborhoods and economic development and growth in New York City. Um, those of you who live here, you may have heard several, um, several develop, neighborhood development plans and efforts that the city has uh, taken on in the past several years. Inwood is one that is happening right now where we're working very closely with the community to identify needs for commercial real estate, housing real estate, creating jobs. And my colleague Diana Torres is working on this project and many more. But we're thinking very strongly there about about, uh, talent development. So great both the real estate side, but then on the other side, how do we support the community in creating more jobs? How can we bring more jobs to the community? 
post-com group, but actually maybe think about companies that we can encourage to move there, what's appropriate, and then what is the career pathways and skills pathways that we can help facilitate for um, and partners we can bring in order to get people access to these jobs. So definitely, I think from a geoplace-based point of view, I mean, there is a lot of need in New York. There is a lot of success, but there is absolutely a lot of need. So it's one at a time. This mayor has... Um, I think now it's four. I may be wrong. Yes, it's East New York, Jamaica, Jamaica, Inhood. There are more that I can remember right now. But we have, I mean, there are several. So this mayor was very, very definitely um, aggressive, I would say, about solving for those inequalities in underserved communities. So we have taken one after the other and are trying to bring that growth in. On the entrepreneurship and industry growth side, um, what we look at is... Um, the, the, the formula of potential of a sector to grow here in New York City, like regardless, and, and, but potential of a sector to grow here in New York. So we'll take cybersecurity, for, for example, is a thriving, is a fast-growing major industry, generally, uh, globally. I think it's maybe estimated at $3 trillion in the next, uh, by 2020. It's a huge industry. In New York City, it's nascent, but we identify a tremendous opportunity for it to grow here because cybersecurity, because the, the consumers of cybersecurity are all here. So financial services, healthcare, the major companies. So there's that and there are other factors that would allow for the growth of that to happen here and for New York City to be the global competitor and, and hub for on the other side, and then in addition to that, so we do want to make sure that those jobs can be created. And the other side is um, who is the jobs, the, the need, talent needs in that industry, and really what is the um, what would be the most effective way to bring New Yorkers to these jobs. And sh- sh- sure, uh, and those you know we we do care of course about everyone and those who are very well educated. We, and that, for that reason, we're working with schools to make sure they have access, but really thinking about what do our lower-income communities look like, what does middle-class job, what do middle-class jobs in New York City look like, and how can we help and help train people, retrain people, in order to give them access to these jobs. So at the, at the end of the day, we'll look at an intersection of those two factors, where there is great opportunity for more jobs to be created, and then not if there is opportunity to bring people on their jobs, because there is always an opportunity but it's really, it is really a question of how. So we care about creating a lot of jobs and then just figuring out what are the solutions that we as the city have to build in order to get access to prepare people for the jobs. So in cybersecurity, for example, right now, we um, announced a few months ago a series of initiatives from a hub and large incubator to support startups to a cybersecurity boot camp and we'll, we'll, we'll run several times a year that will specifically, we're going to work with CUNY. Is that right, Diana? Is it CUNY to make sure that we access those uh, popula- populations in the city that you know, possibly would not have access to these jobs otherwise and, and see how we can make it financially viable for them? Mm-hmm. Okay, I was actually going to ask you about that, but I want to yes. go down to... We'll come back. There's so much... That- <laughs> so before I talk about how we pick the projects and investments that we fund, I actually want to talk about why we do the work that we do. Um, So I mentioned that Living Cities is an economic and racial justice organization. We have been around for close to 30 years. The racial justice part of what we do was not always there. So for the first 25 years of Living Cities, we were focused on promoting economic security for low-income people in U.S. cities. And slowly, um, the institution has come to the realization that you can't talk about economic security in the U.S., particularly in cities, without talking about race. And so we spend a lot of time at Living Cities talking about how we can build an institution that reflects our social values and where the staff is trained to implement the economic security approaches that we need to implement and who have the racial equity competencies that they need to have to implement those programs well. 
So um, I oversee our impact investing uh, work, which I mentioned previously. In terms of how we select the investments that we are going to finance, we are essentially looking for two things. We're looking for borrowers who can service debt. Um, Historically, we have lent to funds or financial institutions Now, with more of a deliberate racial equity focus, we are opening up our credit box to include direct lending, so lending to companies as well. Um, And from a mission perspective, we are looking to support organizations that have people of color in positions of power. So that is founder, management, board, or who have a deliberate strategy to hire people of color and to support them um, because we're specifically interested in if they're employees, low-income people of color, and supporting them so that it's not just a job but other services that ensure long-term success for those individuals. You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about SOCAP 18 and SOCAP 365 at www.socialcapitalmarkets.net. So um, I, I want to go down, but I just want to come to a question. I know uh, that actually it's something that uh, Miliana has raised herself, which is the issue of if you want to invest for racial equality, is it important to invest in companies that are led by people of color? And uh, this is important, I think, because, um, you know, lots of CDFIs find that they not only don't have or have a difficult time finding someone to actually lead who's a person of color, but even have senior positions. Um, And uh, just participation of color in uh, the venture capital uh, field, Miliana has pointed out herself, is abysmal. So I'm just wondering, how do you, how do you deal, how do you see that issue? And, you know, you're working for social equity. Um, Brenda, you feel, you can feel free to comment on it and uh, and then pass that hot potato down. But I'm just interested in, you know, like we talk about racial equality, racial equality, and then our partners don't reflect uh, I can try because I asked my own question, so I put myself in the. I, hot I mean, I find it, it, it. I call it a hot potato because it's a it's a tricky issue, right? You don't want to not invest, but on the other hand, isn't don't we have to hold accountable the organizations which we partner with to actually find those people, bring them in, mentor them, and make it happen? That's. So I think it's my answer to that question is not necessarily, but there has to be people with those cultural competencies and people embedded throughout the organization or borrowers of that organization that are uh, informing the strategies that are being used by intermediaries or funds to do that. But I definitely will say from Prudential's standpoint, we have a strong preference to be supporting institutions, whether venture capital funds. We have a $25 million commitment to support inclusive venture capital models uh, and also diversity across the board. And so it's, I will say not necessarily, but we try to push that agenda as much as possible. And I think another factor, what's interesting for me is our team is about 13. We are 58% diverse. So that's non-white people. So even myself as a female first-generation immigrant is included in the the not 58%, 42%, I can do some math. And then we are 33% female. And I think there's something that's to be said of people doing this type of work, you attract other people who are like-minded and want to do this work and want to do good for the community and make positive change against some of these large-scale social challenges. So I think that's one factor. And then I think another thing that we need to be careful of in the investing versus diversity and inclusion space is it's easy to use one to solve for the other. And so we've had people trying to invest for racial equity who bring in investor decks with all men on the cover. So you need to be having both conversations at the same time about what does diversity look like through your organization and then what are you actually doing on the ground as well to really solve these challenges. So I mentioned that because sometimes the conversation around investing to make these changes in communities or for individuals, you can lose sight of the fact that there are some human capital considerations and management considerations we also need to take into account. And I'll just add, um, so access to capital for people of color, the data is pretty abysmal. So 
venture, I'm someone that loves data. So venture capital, if you look at access to equity, venture capital in 2016, 2% went to black founders. Black female founders, it's a rounding error to 0%. Data from the Fed, the Federal Reserve, shows that access to credit, even when you hold credit quality stable, access to credit is significantly worse for black and Hispanic borrowers. They're denied access to credit more frequently, and even when they receive access to credit, the check sizes that they receive are much lower when you hold credit quality stable. And so I think it is important to support entrepreneurs of color, businesses of color, because they, act, they lack access in the same way. And we're working actually on a solution in the city. To um, we've been uh, we've been looking at the the VC field, which we understand very well, and trying to assess what it is that is, is there something we can do to help close that gap, which is tremendous uh, in the VC, but also the small business access um, capital. We have actually launched several products for women, um, for for women. Um, entrepreneurs in the seed phase, both equity and and, uh, and debt, but we were looking specifically at the both minority and women-owned companies, and where there is a problem, there are different ways of catalyzing the problem, like to echo what you said, uh, it, it does matter who the selection committee is, very much it is both about, both diversity and, and both diversity and representation in that team. And then there may be some even more, like more even added layers of uh, helping people to control for their own bias of self-perceptions, even, even um, not to get too technical, but even for people of color, because we all have our own self-perceptions. Um, and the other piece is building capacity. I think that is really important on the ground. Uh, because, I mean, and people will say there's, you, you can't find pipeline. And that's not true. There's definitely pipeline. You need to know how to find it. But then if there is that we need to build more pipeline, then you have to support that. And even support new VCs, right? New VC managers. Um, and, and it's not, and I'm pointing at you, but just only to agree, but which these institutional investors have a responsibility, right? And you have a, a, you have a scope that you have to serve. But there is government and there is philanthropy which can really play a role in catalyzing that, in helping building, in, in taking the risk, taking more risk in, um, in a young, in a new a minority or female-owned VC fund and teaching them, you know, and helping them in providing the infrastructure, the cost, to teach them ultimately how do you run a fund, how do you raise money, and create a mentor, a network around those funds that would allow them then you know, down the road to be, to be successful. Did you know that the VC funding, I think the range, um, the VC networks are known to work um, and find deals based on referrals and nothing else. And I believe that in Silicon Valley, but it may be a national statistic, um, VC, invest, VC, VC investors invest only within something like a maximum 20-mile range within where their office is. I mean, it is such a closed network system. It couldn't be more, I mean, it, it couldn't be more prime for disruption. I, I just want to comment on one thing that Miliana said a, a few minutes ago, introduced the gender lens. And I want to make sure we don't dismiss the gender lens without really understanding the importance of the gender lens, which is people of color and uh, men and women face uniquely different challenges in every form of market. And so if we are saying, well, we want to promote racial equality, but we don't want to look through a gender lens, then we're leaving out women of color, which is uh, which would be a big problem since they represent a huge share of entrepreneurs. So it's really important to keep that gender lens, in my view, in in perspective when we're looking at issues of racial equality and inequality. James, you've used a term once that I, I it tickled me when I heard it. You used, I was reminded of it when um, uh, Brenda, I think you had mentioned access to credit is very difficult. And James, you use this phrase, yes, it is, when you're using the master's tools. So if you could explain that uh, creative, uh, that creative term, because I, I find it to be uh, very thoughtful, very Well, I mean, I, I think we're having an interesting conversation about capital when the structures and the financial institutions and the, the way we, we, we <laughs> allocate credit and determine whether or not you're worthy of it um, was built to keep certain people 
out of that space. So we're trying to solve problems with tools that don't, that, I'm laughing, but yeah, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's the master's tools. And so I think the part of conversation is, is, is there's a spectrum here, right? So some of it's around, you know, reforming the system and doing better with what we have at the same time, realizing that what we have isn't good enough and that, that some of that might need to be a revolution around what we do. And so whether it's community, I mean, one interesting piece of, of, the, of the pie we're not talking about is, you know, there's a huge thing in America about the entrepreneur. We've, we've put them on a pedestal, and it's an interesting space, and I'm one of them, so I think it's awesome when I, when I get props for it. <laughs> but, but, but the commons is a very interesting thing. And we, and, and we talk about cities particularly. Like, we're, we're in tighter spaces having to share everything, yet we're not building tools to figure out how to share that stuff from a capital perspective. And I think at the edges of where we are, we're seeing really great initiatives. And again, I'm going to beat the drum again of like, you know, what does shared infrastructure look like? What does shared digital, um, you know, assets look like? What does your, you know, shared data look like? Um, and then how, how do you invest in that stuff? So I think part of this, this kind of future strain, and I think it ties directly to the need to think about what does the, the new generation of, of physical infrastructure look like in, in this city? Everybody who lives here recognizes the, the atrophying transit infrastructure that we're dealing with, among other things here. But it has a direct economic impact. And I think if you look at other places you know, that weren't part of the development cycle and they're skipping some steps here, they're thinking through new ways to accrue capital, whether, you're, whether it's the, you know, if, you're, if you go overseas and look at micro-lending and the fact that you can, you can assess credit through a phone. Um, and it's based on it's based on interstitial relationships that people have. We did a study. And I, all right, I got. I'm looking. At, I have some clients in the room, and if I say something I'm supposed to say, <laughs> give me the evil eye. But we, we did a we did a study for a, un, a unnamed city client a couple of years ago around alternative credit methods. And what we were really excited about, we did we looked at Bed Stuy, and we looked at the at the trust relationships, and you look at the spectrum of of risk. Who do you get your money from? So if you're in Marcy Projects and you need 50 bucks, right, who, are you, who do you ask? And what we saw was you, you have a friends and family opportunity. It may be smaller than a typical one that you typically see in other places. But people do ask their friends. They do ask their family. Those were very high risk, much more high risk than in other, 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 frankly, racial pockets because there just wasn't any money there. So if someone gives you 50 bucks, and you don't give it back, you're going to have a problem on a bunch of different levels. <laughs> so, so, you know, but mainly that relationship may be severed for something that you wouldn't consider to be that much money. So the risk involved is way more, more, more tangible. What was also interesting is that you, you had, you know, things that we, you know, SUSUs or circle lending was happening at a much bigger rate. Um, you know, so the idea of businesses or even either, or either just um, individuals lending to each other over time or institutions in the neighborhood, like I was saying before. So the bodega, the bogadero, extending credit and cash to people who need to make it, make it work in a certain thing. Our, our idea was, could you take, could you daily chain all of these different institutions and figure out if you could scale it high enough to be predictive? Could you say, hey, let's go you know, to Experian or, or, or Equifax with this data. Is it clean enough to be able to, to create predictive models around you know, certain communities that are going to be different, cash economies, things like that. The neat part about it was the public sector sitting on a ton of data around um, predictive analytics. And so bless Scott Stringer and several other folks who were focused on rent and trying to create a more progressive um, rent protocol around, around credit. You know, you can certainly get a judgment um, on your credit report if you don't pay your rent, but, you know, all, the, all of the payments you do make never make it on the credit report. Same thing with utilities, same thing with parking tickets, same thing with house support. The list goes on and on and on. The opportunity is the credit bureaus, which is another one of these tools that we're talking about, if you were thinking about reforming how they make their predictive analytics, they need the data that's going to make sense for that, for that space. But it needs to be a thought around that. And then how do you take, as lenders, how do you take that and figure out the underwriting based on that new criteria? So all these structures need to be, in my mind, need to be rethought about as we're, as we're reforming the existing system, we're thinking about this new stuff as well. And I'll say from Peru's standpoint, we've been very bullish on the power of data analytics to really provide more responsible financial products in particular to individuals, so focusing solely on individuals. And obviously everybody is. I mean, fintech is full of 
many lending platforms that are using data in very different ways, in a terrifying way, to uh, decide who to underwrite. I was on a panel uh, a couple weeks ago where uh, a hedge fund revealed that if you had two people who were nurses and they filled out applications, one that said RN, just the letters, and the other registered nurse, there was predictive power over their repayment curve based on how they filled out an application. So if you're not terrified, uh, I was. <laughs> but there is an opportunity around that. And I think one opportunity we're looking at, and I know Brenda is as well, is a company called SixUp. So they are intended to be a student lending platform to fill a financing gap for high potential, low-income students across the U.S. And when you look at the SOFIs and the common bonds and the earnest of the world, they're all using the same data, and so they've grown immensely, but they're also wholly replaceable. And so I think on the theory of change and the types of investments we look at are really interesting companies or projects where people are taking a little bit of more time but being smart about it to do something that is very different. And I would say it's not a risk, it's actually an opportunity. Because for someone else to come in and do all of that again, uh, I would bet how many people are out there. As we say in our shop, capital markets are great at doing the same thing uh, over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to pick up on something that James said when you're talking about tools, right? So um, a couple of people have referred to it. Um, when we're looking at, for example, the, the uh, conventional mortgage market, right, right? One of the most important sources of business uh, financing is home equity. And yet home, own, home ownership for blacks and Latinos really is very, yeah, I mean, uh, African-Americans just a couple of years ago as a result of the Great um, uh, Recession, home ownership rate dropped back down to 1968. It's still only a couple of, a point and a half above where it was when discrimination was legal. And so that's not a very uh, powerful statement about progress in the home ownership space. What's important about it is that the conventional market still uses outdated credit scores, which every institution that studied them has concluded they're outdated and they're not very predictive for people of color. And what's interesting about it is both of the major um, credit score companies, FICO and VantaScore, actually promote that they have much more predictive scores for mortgage lending that are not being used. But the uh, government institutions continue to use outdated credit scores. And the thing that's interesting about the credit scores is they're not even as predictive as just a rent payment. And yet, we collect all this data, but we don't collect a rent payment. For anyone who's interested in this conversation, the Urban Institute just released a paper showing the predictive power of paying your rent versus having a credit card with respect to owning a home. Do you really need research to say that it's more predictive how you pay your rent versus how you pay a credit card, right? And, yet, and, and so now the uh, Urban Institute study is out there for all to see. It's very, very powerful, and yet the federal agencies are continuing to use outdated credit scores. These things may seem like small things, and so a lot of times it's easy to set that to the side and say, oh, that's a, that's a data issue. No, that is the core of what enables people to access financial markets, and those, those data issues cannot be um, uh, overstated. I will say quickly that we find that more often than not that the solution is actually a no-brainer. It just hasn't been done yet versus something no one has ever thought about. So that doesn't surprise me. Right. And to James's point, everyone knows that rental payments are more predictive, but there is no real effort on the part of federal agencies to actually bring about equity by you know, setting, helping, helping to set up the systems that allow for it to be collected and utilized. So it's, uh, it's very frustrating. You're listening to Money and Meaning. You can find out more about SOCAP at our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net, with a list of our upcoming events, including our annual conference at the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco, October 23rd to 26, 2018. I want to go into some of what you would consider to be um, some of the success stories, if we could go down and just do one apiece. I'm going to start with Miliana, because I know you have something that you've been working on at Prudential that you're very proud of, and the company is. Um, and, um, and so I want to both hear about it, and then also, right on the back of it, I'd like to know the extent to which that initiative is scalable. Sure. 
Yeah, so what Jim is referring to is we've actually been working on a $100 million investment initiative outside of Prudential uh, really to close the racial wealth gap. And it's a partnership with the Annie E. Casey and the Kresge Foundations who have really championed this work. And I think it really came to be post uh, the last election, realizing that I think we all had some reflections and we wanted to do more work in this space. And so uh, we're really excited about it because they've selected us as their sole investment partner for the initiative. And so we're able to continue to screen and vet investment opportunities across uh, the spectrum that really have evidence of closing the racial wealth gap. So we're still in development of all of the strategies and are grappling with, I think, some of the same issues that James mentioned around income and wealth and place-based or national. Uh, but I think this is really exciting and one, I think, that speaks to our track record in the space and I think our creativity with these foundations and trying to drive these outcomes. So more to come on that. Uh, it's not new work for us, but I think what I think we're most excited about is when someone says we're going to give you $30 million in guarantees or credit enhancement, and you have to actually sit back and ponder what would we do with it. I think on the sustainability question, what we're really trying to identify are opportunities that are just facing a barrier, but once they get past that, they'll be sustainable on their own. So an example could be a minority-owned development firm that just doesn't have a robust enough balance sheet, but if you get them to do this massive $100 million project, it will be a game-changer for their business and develop the track record they need to do more projects in the community. So that could be an example. It could be some of the online lending platforms we're looking at that need the first $5, $10 million in debt, debt capital to demonstrate track record and have some data such that they can attract more capital. And so that's another example of an opportunity where it's not... It's not a high risk all the time. There's just a barrier to getting there. And so those are the types of opportunities we're looking at such that it doesn't have to be a replicable $100 million investment strategy, but you're at least uh, capitalizing companies and other firms and intermediaries such that they can be enduring institutions beyond our investment. Miliana, uh, just before we go on, are, are there any benchmarks or, or time frames that you're working with so, so people who might be interested in what you're doing know when to look to see what impact you're having? Sure. So it's a four-year origination period. So imagine a, a slower ramp up and then to really double down, I think, next year. You said four years. Four years. So it'll be in, in place for a bit of time. And I think what we're really trying to grapple with on that time dimension is one conversation we've had is when you're dealing with building wealth, which is a real game changer, that's not a four-year metric that you can track. So how do we be accountable to what we're all trying to do while making meaningful change? And so these are all the kinds of questions that we're thinking about collectively to make sure that we're moving capital while having impact, because those are the kinds of uh, issues that we deal with as impact investors every day. Thank you. Brenda, um, one that you'd like to really highlight, a real yeah, success sure. story. So... Time will tell, similar to what Miliana was saying, if it's a success story. Um, but it's a transaction that I like, and I'll, t I'll tell you why. But first, I'll describe the deal. Um, so at the end of 2017, uh, the Blended Catalyst Fund made a loan to a loan fund. It's called the Propeller Social Venture Fund that is based in New Orleans, and the fund lends to early-stage entrepreneurs, many of whom are entrepreneurs of color, who have difficulty accessing credit through more commercial means. Um, what I like about this loan fund is that in, in addition to extending credit, the borrowers from this fund are also able to access technical assistance. And what that technical assistance does is it improves the credit quality of the loan that they're receiving. So it means that they are more likely to repay the money that they've borrowed. But it also means that with that technical assistance, they are more likely to be able to grow their businesses, hire more, hire more people, create more jobs, hire more people, and create wealth for the owners of those businesses. And so I think that combination of capital and technical assistance working together is really important. And so uh, just a question, is the Propeller Fund in New Orleans, is it only for New Orleans or is it a national? No, it's only for New Orleans. But I think that combination of capital and technical assistance um, can be 
employed in many different places. And one thing, I sit on the investment committee for the loan fund, and one thing that I'm discovering is that New Orleans is a very small community. And so kind of coming back to what you were saying, the importance of having a close-knit community where people know each other, um, it really works in the context of this fund. Okay, these are some truly systemic solutions here. Uh, and, And you all do great work. And Prudential is quite outstanding, I would say, in impact investing if all institutional investors uh, are as sophisticated and committed. But um, the one part, thinking of more systemic solutions that can be scaled, uh, thinking about talent development and access to jobs, which I referenced before, but there is definitely with the rise of uh, technology and and tech jobs, there is a great opportunity to provide uh, access to good jobs, good quality paying jobs for lower income and middle income populations through short term, um, through just short term training compared to a two year or four year degree, which is of course also also absolutely desirable. But there is an opportunity to get people through, um, to get people through three month or six month training, and then give them access to jobs, and then help them get access to jobs. So specifically on that, what we have done, and we have been uh, scaling it across uh, all of our programs as we are launching them, is that we're very in intentional when we create any talent, whether it is a talent development program or it is an initiative to support companies to hire New Yorkers and find the talent they need, that we partner with operators, the talent, the, the, the training operator or the we have some internships, life sciences internships or the training operator or the boot camp operator that there is in, even in our own contract um, and we mandate in our contract and we help facilitate partnerships with, uh, with uh, community groups that can actually, that can, can get, that understand the populations and know what it will take to actually, to attract them. Of course, I, I give them the opportunity to go through the program, but then I place them in jobs. So that role for us of government to, of course, be intentional, and we're always intentional, but be also be, play a strong role in building the partnerships that are necessary to deliver on that, because there is definitely a lot. It is, it can be, we have the power to mandate it in our contracts when we spend, invest, let's say, $2 million or $3 million in building a new boot camp um, that will eventually go off and become its own business, because typically all of our operators and programs, uh, we seed them, we pay for a large amount of their, their operations for a few years, and then they spin off and become sustainable. So we're looking at, and we have done it, at the very foundation, at the very beginning to mandate these things and, make, and also facilitate the process, because mandating is one thing, making, seeing something succeed is important. So we're working on bringing in both the operators and on the other side, the, um, the employers. So asking uh, for, uh, for government to make the calls to employers to work with the boot camps, with our training programs to place people. And of course, I understand that process very well, right? I work with experts to understand what may be the challenges other than just getting people to a program, what, may, what challenges they may face in, through the hiring process and be very intentional about it. And then there are new groups that we, I hope we can support more like Prescolas, they're not the new, but uh, uh, groups that are non-profit talent development and placement, groups that are using more innovative approaches to training and placing people in jobs or actually maybe or Prescolas has their own revenue based. They have a consulting practice ultimately where they provide finance, they provide backup IT for different co- corporates and Cognizant is one of their key clients. So they train people, then they hire them themselves, the nonprofit hires them, gives them the opportunity to develop experience and understand the corporate culture at which point they're ready to pursue a full-time job. So these are solutions. And they're they're very scalable. And in part, they're very scalable because and and that's, I'm sorry, that's a big piece and I'll stop here. They are scalable because tech companies need need talent and we don't have enough talent. The US doesn't have have enough talent. We have, there's a deficit of tech talent and it's not just about the highly educated engineers. Mm -hmm. There is a large range of jobs up to, you know, $90,000 well-paying jobs where there is a big deficit. So corporates have an incentive to find talent. And if we can facilitate and direct them the Proper, the right way and with philanthropy um, put up the cost for what it will take to de-risk the model of, um, you know, of 
whatever may seem risky to corporates. I think it will be impactful. I'll mention, actually, I'm going to cheat and do two very quickly. So, uh, well, <laughs> so one is, uh, well, let's use technically three. So uh, the idea of, of a direct public offering um, is, is an old school concept. I mean, the Jobs Act has kind of made, it's, it's not obsolete, but there's, there's room for this idea of, of being able to invest in, in your in your community and small businesses directly. Um, and for, the, for a long time, you had to do it at the state level, and most people didn't deploy it. But over the last maybe 10 years, uh, it's been utilized a little bit more. So I'm going to shout out two of my, my buddies. Um, one is Brahmamati in Oakland. Uh, I forget the name. It's, it's Community Foods Market now, but it was People's Community Market before. Like, I was doing bodega renovations. He was trying to get the supermarket thing happening like 10 years ago, and we both have been kind of doing this weird dance with each other. And um, he texted me about two weeks ago. He said, I'm, clo- I'm closing, um, I'm doing my groundbreaking for this, for this building he's been trying to acquire forever in West Oakland. And I laughed and I said, you know, you're building, you're building a, a grocery store for gentrifiers. Awesome. I, I, I congratulate your timing. But, but what's exciting about that project in all seriousness is he, he's, he's done three rounds. I think he's going to do his fourth round of direct public offering. Um, he's raised probably like four or five million dollars worth of capital through directly to um, his community. And that means pretty much anyone in California has the ability to buy a share. And there's different share tranches, obviously. But people in West Oakland, low income, you know, people of color bought, you know, an asset through that process. Um, the other is a similar project up in um, Massachusetts is a group called Ciro. I think I'm saying their name right. But Ciro's awesome because there was over like six, it was a six, six, uh, little little old black and brown folks who uh, <laughs> you know and, and, and one really really cool um, uh, non cis um, woman who was kind of in the mix as well but the, they, they created a composting company that got these really big contracts but couldn't service them because they didn't have the equipment to do it at scale so same thing they did a um, direct public offering and raised about half a million dollars from their community in Roxbury, um, among other folks as well, to get the equipment. And they've done several other tranches to build their business that way. And I just, I just thought it was a really interesting way to think about not just raising capital, obviously, but really building a community through the idea of capital. And it's very tangible and very clear what you're getting from it. So um, that's been, those, are, those two stories I think are really great. We do good stuff too, but they're, they're, that's a little bit better. Because there may be people who are representing organizations or institutions or individuals who actually might want to get into the social investing space. So I'm just wondering, for anyone who's really interested in leading their corporations and or institutions that they work for into the social uh, investing space, is there any advice you could offer them? Where did they start? How, you know, what, how do they even begin to move into that space? So my recommendation would be spend less time developing strategy and more time doing it. So you're only going to learn by doing. Uh, So the more time you you develop a strategy that's in a vacuum, the more you have to explain to somebody else, does it fit within a strategy? And then you get into this checking the box type rubric, which doesn't work for anybody. So I would say if you can make a case to whomever your board, any senior management to allocate 5 million, 10 million, even just a small pot of money and to just dabble and maybe earmark a couple verticals that you want to go after and then come out with lessons learned after the fact, that would be recommendation number one. Recommendation number two, do not only look at nonprofits. I think we see so much impact investing activity that thinks it has to go through a nonprofit or to a nonprofit, and if you limit yourself to that, you're missing a wealth of opportunities. My two recommendations would be when you start, uh, even if you start with a 5 or $7 million allocation, hire people with finance skills who actually know how to make investments. So that's the first one. Uh, the second one um, would be if you really are focused on economic security in the U.S., don't ignore the role that race plays in that. We may be launching a solution, we'll see, that targets at the venture capital gap for women and uh, for women and minorities. So in case we do that, we'll I'll ask uh, people to join us, but, or maybe we can join forces. We are not raising money anyway. We're just trying to be catalytic capital and government to play a catalytic capital role. So two things, uh, advice I would give. One, um, 
is to um, I mean, definitely, I would say, to think, to look at the for-profit for models and, and simply businesses that are solving that are solving problems, whether it's you know through tech or whether it's through new products or because, or um, based on their own operations, but definitely look at for-profits because those also models of success, tech impact investing um, uh, successes there are very important. To, um, to catalyze more mainstream investors to do that. And second, I would say to seek out partnerships, especially if uh, thinking of family offices who may have a lot of wealth but be more limited in their resources to, to seek out partnerships, going maybe start you know, from coin, for the smaller investors, from co-investing uh, in deals, SPV vehicles, before you think about putting together a fund. But there are different ways of trying things out. And there are networks like SOCAP and... Um, um, and which is a, a fantastic network, and other networks in New York City that do that. And what's, I work a lot with mainstream investors as well. And I, I, at this point, I started working in impact investing three and a half years ago. And now I work largely in, in, with mainstream investors and a lot of family offices. And I'll say I hardly ever go to a meeting right at this point in a, with a family office where uh, impact, social impact, doesn't come up. They may not call it impact investing, but they all just uh, happy to do something they care about and they get excited. Be open to failing a lot. Um, you know, you're not going to, most deals don't work, right? So understanding what that, that failure to success cycle needs to look like over a longer period of time. And I think they've all mentioned this idea of scale. Like if you're trying to solve a really, really big problem, like you're going to have lots of iterative milestones of success and failure and going back and forth around that but being very clear about what you're trying to get to at the end of the day. Um, and if you're trying to solve something that's very, very large, um, who are you going to partner with to get there because you're not going to do it by yourself? So being clear about that. So I, I heard three rules that came out of this, and I think they were really good. Starting with yours, Miliana, I, I really like it, which is don't spend your time strategizing forever. Pick an issue that's important to yourself or to the institution. Hire an investment expert and then get on with it. And I think the third thing was really important, James, because I think that probably is one of the biggest impediments that people fail, and then they just close shop and say, oh, well, that was a waste of money. We should never have done that. And no, failure is part of success. You, no one is successful without having failures along the way. And I think, again, going back, the panel just looped back around to what Miliana said in the beginning, which was, and you learn as you go, and, and the more you learn, the better you get. Uh, or invest in a fund that already knows what they're doing. Thanks for listening to Money and Meaning. We really appreciate your attention and your time. A reminder that if you're planning to join us at SOCAP18, you can use the network partner code NP underscore money and meaning. You can follow us on Twitter at SOCAP Markets. For impact investing updates across the industry, we tweet lots of stuff of what's going on. And sign up for our newsletter. If you go to socialcapitalmarkets.net, a little pop-up there will invite you to add your email address, and we share lots of additional resources throughout the year um, via our blog. We do consistent interviews with uh, major players across the field. Um, we use that to seed content for this podcast and for our events. Uh, we also, through our newsletter, share discounts uh, for tickets to the conference and other conferences across the industry and, of course, upcoming events near you. So thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more about what you've heard, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us at SoCap Markets on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.